I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Taoiseach Micheál Martin today told the COP26 Climate Summit that it's not too late to turn the tide on climate change and that it's the responsibility of politicians to put the necessary policies in place. Ireland will more than double its contribution to developing countries so that we are delivering at least 225 million a year by 2025. There are fears that the situation in our hospitals will deteriorate further as the HSE reports 3,726 new COVID cases, the highest since January 14th. We hear from Phil Hay of the IMO on the pressures faced by our frontline health workers. And later, as the world pays more attention to climate change, climate anxiety is also on the rise. What can we do to find hope in a time of crisis? We'll get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag, TonightVMTV. Today at the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow, the Taoiseach addressed world leaders and pledged that Ireland will be carbon neutral by 2050 and is ready to play its part. Ireland is ready to play its part. We have enacted legislation to put a legally binding target of reducing our emissions by 2030 to 51% below 2018 levels. We will reach climate neutrality by 2050. Those of us in the developed world, those who have frankly contributed most to the problems that confront us, all have an obligation to support those who are most acutely challenged by their consequences. Ireland accepts that obligation. And in support of achieving the 100 billion target, I'm therefore pleased to announce today that Ireland will more than double its contribution to developing countries so that we are delivering at least 225 million a year by 2025. Well, in studio to discuss is Finnafall TD and climate spokesperson Christopher O'Sullivan, independent TD Michael McNamara and people before profit TD Breed Smith. But first, let's join our political correspondent Gavin Riley, who's in Glasgow for us tonight. And Gavin, the Taoiseach there on the need for climate action by on a global scale. Um, strong words today as he addressed that climate summit. Strong words, although, and this is no measure or no disrespect to the Taoiseach, it wasn't to a very packed house because as COP26 goes on, more and more world leaders are either packing up and going home or they're spending a lot of their time in fringe other sideline meetings, which means that there isn't necessarily a massive audience when they're in the middle of those particular addresses. But nonetheless, the Taoiseach certainly stepping up to the mark, at least when it comes to finances, saying that the Taoiseach is going to be uh, standing over a budget of £225 million by 2025 as part of the contribution towards global de- uh, decarbonisation. 
innovation in emerging economies. That's part of a whole uh, national fund or international fund rather of $100 billion. But there are some question marks around whether that is adequate to meet all the targets. Today we also heard from the president of Palau, which is an island nation in the Pacific. They're talking about the idea of maybe needing $4 trillion to decarbonise the emerging world. And also you have Christian Aid today saying that Ireland's share of a one billion fund really ought to be something closer to around 500 million euro instead of 225. And other contributions as well today, Gavin, not least from Joe Biden, who gave a speech, and Ursula von der Leyen, who made that pledge about methane emissions. That's right. The methane emissions one is quite stark. And we'll come back to that in just a minute because it might mean an awful lot for agriculture in Europe. And that might be a bit of a sticking point when it comes to Ireland. Joe Biden, who was speaking to reporters inside the last three hours or so, said that there had never been a two day period in all of developed modern human history where as much had been promised for the environment as the last two days here in Glasgow. Of course, there will be some leaders who will doubt that. But he points to that methane pledge by the G20 leaders that was signed off over the weekend and also a major international pledge to stop deforestation, which has been signed up by the president of Brazil, which has surprised a lot of people because people will remember the Amazon wildfires a couple of years ago and how Jair Bolsonaro's regime wasn't doing very much to try and address all of that. If you do have deforestation stopped by all of the major economies by 2030, it does suggest that you will get an awful long way towards making some immediate short-term practical solutions. And that's something which Joe Biden was really embracing, albeit also taking a swipe at the leaders of Russia and China for dodging this summit in person. And of course, all these words are all very well, Gavin, but it's really um, how they're put into action. Have we a firmer idea of what's going to be in that climate bill being released here at home this week? No, the Taoiseach has been very non-committal about all of that and he has been asked in particular about that global pledge to try and cut down on methane emissions by 30%, which was signed up to by the EU. In fact, it was a joint EU-US initiative, so you might imagine that Ireland feels itself to be fairly bound for that. And that's when it comes to agriculture is going to be something very tricky for the Irish government because Ireland's emissions are disproportionately made up of methane because of the size of our agriculture and agri-food industries. And the Taoiseach was asked time and time again by reporters over the last couple of days, does the EU-US deal mean that Ireland is going to have to itself cut methane emissions by 30% and does that inevitably mean farmers being asked to downsize on their herds? The Taoiseach has been non-committal. He keeps talking about stabilising the national herd, which again was a, a phrase that we heard Leo Varadkar talk in the Dáil today. We don't know whether that means managed increases, whether it means keeping it as it is or maybe having some sort of natural wastage over time. And that is just one area where we're likely to see some big controversies when it comes to that plan being published on Thursday. We're also going to see major moves to try and have electricity generation decarbonised to, to a significant degree by 2030 and road transport as well. So plenty of hard decisions to be made ahead, but certainly the Taoiseach at least on this scale try to present Ireland as having at least made its promises, whatever about the practice. OK, Gavin, in Glasgow, thanks for joining us tonight. And I'm joined now by my panel. Um, I want to come to you first, Christopher O'Sullivan. Like, a lot of focus today um, on, I think, in the Taoiseach speech, talking about this move and getting everyone on board with the changes that have to come about. He mentioned workers worry that their jobs will disappear, leaving them without a livelihood and ensuring that they will succeed in limiting emissions to get everyone on board. This idea and this big phrase, the just transition. Um, do you think this is preempting the public mood that we're facing as, as this climate bill comes on stream this week? Look, I, I think we have to focus on the positives first and foremost. Um, you know, what COP26 is doing, uh, it's the first time uh, that I have remembered that I've experienced a situation where every TV station, every radio station, every front page of every newspaper is covering climate action. It's covering, it has a, a, an increased focus on climate action and we have to welcome that. And furthermore, what Ireland is doing is it's going to COP26 
with a climate action bill that's been passed into law that has been described as one of the best in class and a leader who is clearly committed uh, to Ireland doing its bit in terms of, of climate action. So I think we have to focus on that and the fact that we will in the coming weeks have a climate action plan that will reach our goal of 51%. And just specifically when he was talking about worried workers, livelihoods at stake and again just get, getting, getting people on board with that change and, and how that will happen, is there a worry there that people are going to be cautious and really fearful about jobs and, and what this plan will mean for them in their lives? I think you know a, a large um, portion of his speech was um, pointing out the fact that we have no alternative but to act now. We have to act now because it's going to impact our food production, it's going to impact our livelihoods, it's going to, in other parts of the world, it's going to lead to desertification, it's going to lead to drought, it's going to lead to mass immigration. So um, this is something that we have to take seriously. Um, but, you know, in, in relation to his commitments, he has firmly stated in his speech um, at COP26, which I thought was strong, that we are committed to doing our bit um, to reducing climate action, and, and that is uh, reducing climate change, and that is evident in the fact that we go to COP26 with one of the, um, the strongest climate action bills okay. uh, anywhere in the globe. Okay. Uh, big question is, that what does all that mean for people at home? Because we are waiting to see what will be in this bill that's, I think, a subcommittee, um, cabinet subcommittee tomorrow and then released formally on Thursday. Do you think there's scepticism out there about how these changes will be achieved, Michael? Um, and, because massive change is required. Yeah, I mean, I just think there's no clarity on how that change will be achieved. I mean, in particular in agriculture, what exactly will it mean for agriculture? I mean, I think there's a fear in agriculture that there'll be a, a forced reduction of numbers. Now, the Taoiseach has said there won't be, but, you know, people are concerned. Uh, and if there's a, a reduction in beef and milk production in Ireland, and I suppose the reason that we have so much beef and milk production in Ireland is because we can produce it very efficiently. I mean, yes, it does... Um, cause climate change, our, our global warming emissions, mm. but far less than producing a litre of milk in other countries, most other countries in the world in fact, far less than producing a kilo of beef in other countries. So does most that mean we don't fact, do as much as other countries per capita? No, but I think what we do need to be careful is that if we're reducing our production levels, that what's not happening is that beef and milk is being imported from other countries, which is having a, a far greater impact on the environment. For example, Mercusaur is, is being agreed. At the same time as we're discussing all of this, Mercusaur is being agreed, which will result in, albeit at limited amounts, but farmers very much fear that it's the, it's the Trojan horse, that you'll have beef imported from Latin America. And we know that Latin American beef uh, isn't produced to the same environmental standards. And equally, we see in our television screens the cost of that beef, and we know that carbon emissions per kilo of that beef are far, far, far greater. I mean, the reason that Irish farmers have grown so much, you know, farmers are, farms are bigger now, you either get bigger, get out, is because mm. the, co the amount of money that farmers get per kilo of beef hasn't increased since the 1980s. The amount of farmers get per litre of milk has scarcely increased since the 1980s. So farmers are forced to produce for a mass market. Yeah. And, you know, they, there might be a willingness to reduce production if they knew that their, their product, which is environmentally... Um, at least very environmentally policed and patrolled and has a, a relatively low carbon emissions compared to most other countries in the world, that the product that they're no longer okay. producing isn't being coming from those countries at even greater environmental costs. And I think that's a big concern for Irish agriculture. OK, but I suppose moving away just from uh, distinctly farmers for a second, Breed, on this one, um, as someone who strongly advocates for 
workers' rights. That's what this just transition idea is about. We came up, trade unions came up with it essentially to say, if you're going to be making big changes, make sure you keep jobs in the process. I, I take it that you'd welcome any moves to ensure that there isn't a, a change in jobs or if people are switching up their jobs that, and going into something that's deemed more sustainable, that, that all their pay conditions and everything else remains the same. Of course we'd welcome that and that is what just transition means. Unfortunately, it hasn't meant it for the Borden Mona workers. They have jobs, uh, new jobs in factories that don't have pay conditions, pensions or even trade union rights the same as they did when they worked for Borden Mona. Many of them don't have new jobs. But just on the Taoiseach speech, what jumped out of me, and I have a copy of it here in front of me, was zilch mention of the fossil fuel industry. Not a single mention of fossil fuels. Refers to agriculture, refers to workers, refers to the global south in a roundabout way of saying... We're going to have an increase of 225 million. That's half what Leo Varadkar spent on his spin campaign on social protection. If you remember back when he tried to say he represents everybody who gets up early in the morning, that's half of what he spent. So we need to put these things in perspective. But I absolutely agree with what Michael said about farmers. They're being forced to produce more for less. And that is not because we are a sound producer. Uh, it, that's not the main reason why they're doing it. It's because of the model mm. that the Department of Agriculture, Chagas and Onboardbia have forced on farmers, on the family farm in particular, for the last 15 years. Get more cows, get more dairy, yeah. get more beef. But then it is all dictated, not by the interests of farming or ecology, but by the retailers and the processors. Crucially, crucially by big agribusiness, the process dictate the pace of that. That's why you saw farmers outside the gates of the Dáil. And why we'll see protesters outside the gates of the Dáil next Saturday and all over yeah. the country and in fact all over the world. The global <clears throat> climate movement will be marching to demand more from COP26 yeah. on Saturday. What the about the November. promises that all these food processors have made around what they're doing? So for example, Kerry Group has said we'll cut our emissions by 55% by 2030. They'd be very well aware of what they're hearing, I'm sure, from government on that and reaching net zero by 2050. Like they're making these promises the processors. Pardon the pun, but I take it all with a grain of salt. These processors are exporting most of the dairy produce, most of the beef, and the, the small and medium farms are suffering as a result because their prices are being kept down to benefit the profits, the billions in profits that these companies make. And if just transition is to mean anything, it must mean that we look after the family farmers and the small so farmers what, what first. Are you, what are you saying about then these groups, I mean, that are, are, are actually so well represented, so profitable uh, and make such a name for them, themselves abroad with their exports, with exporting Irish products. Are you saying... I'm saying they, that, they, the, small, I'm saying that the small family farmers being sacrificed for their profits and it's their profits that are paramount and they have a huge influence okay. in both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. I won't mention the names on telly but think about it. Don Meats, Kerry Co-op, all the big names. You just mentioned the names on telly. No, they, I'm, you know, I'm talking about names of individuals yes. and a, okay. a good man is one of them who down through the decades has had a huge political influence on the course of agriculture in this look, country. And, and look, they, they, they will state um, sorry, that they yeah. have origin green and they have they have projects and Absolutely, that in place. But, but you know, the big meat producers, uh, the big processors like um, Goodman's Group, ABP, 
now have a, have a, a large footprint in Latin America and Poland. So really Ireland reducing uh, its emissions doesn't matter. They're in a, they're in a position well, to... Well, it does to, matter. No, it, it doesn't it, matter it, to it them because they're in a position to satisfy exactly the same supermarket shelves and put beef in them, but they might be coming from a country with, um, with greater carbon emissions like, per kilo okay. of that beef. This is, the, this, is the big, this is the big conflict with it all, that there's a sense that as individuals, um, as people were being asked to do a lot, but there's other countries, there's the likes of China, Russia, um, that you know aren't even present at the conference. There's the big emitters. They don't seem to be doing their bit. So in terms of what we do, then it, 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 to some, it seems unfair. Well, first of all, it's positive to see that China and, and both China and Brazil have both signed up to the uh, deforestation uh, ambition in terms of banning de deforestation by 2030 and also the reduction in methane. So there has been some uh, wins, I suppose, already in COP26. But this argument that because Ireland is a small nation and a small population uh, that we don't necessarily have to contribute or we don't necessarily have to reduce our emissions, um, I don't buy that argument. If, if every community of a population of about five or six million decided that they were going to turn their back on climate action and not do their bit, um, then we will not get anywhere in terms of reaching we our emissions. We could reduce our emissions if we refused neutrality. to import LNGs in, in and if we, if we stopped building Reed, unsustainable Reed, you data know, centres, you know which you policy. opposed. You know that it's government policy. Um, to stop the building of LNGs. You know that there's a direction to be given to Borplanola to take that into account, to take government policy of um, not building But they will LNGs not ban them. So and that, they, that is policy. They and, will and not ban them and they won't ban the, well. the, the proliferation in terms, in terms of, of data of, of agriculture, okay, and there's been a lot of debate around agriculture, it's always been widely accepted that transport and energy and land use will do the heavy lifting in terms of the reductions of emissions. The Climate Advisory Council have given us essentially a pie. It's now up to government to decide that. how that pie is going okay. to be divided. But I expect, listen, there's a lot of, of, of what I would describe as scaremongering in relation to agriculture. This talk of uh, cutting the national herd and culling the national herd. Mm. There are other technologies out there, Claire, that can be used to Instead achieve Instead of cutting reduction. the national herd. Exactly. We're talking about mixed species spores. We're talking about uh, genetics that will allow us to slaughter okay. cattle at an earlier age, that will achieve uh, huge reductions in methane. There's a very important point, because this has been lost, there's also a biodiversity crisis here. And the agri-environment scheme, a 1.4 billion agri-environment scheme that's been proposed by government will go a long way uh, to ensuring that instead of incentivising farmers uh, to remove biodiversity and remove um, bits of habitat, that we incentivise them to keep it. And that's one of the key wins yeah. from it, CAP discussions. Uh, I, uh, there, is a, there is a cultural change. So one method of farming that, that generations of people may have been used to doing now have to change up and look at the issue. Now, farmers would say, look, they've always been, biodiversity has been the heart of their job Absolutely. for, for I mean, a very you know, long time. I, I but do you think that that cultural change, like even that mention there of fossil fuels and the burning of fuels in our home and the open fire and all these things that many associate with Irish life, is there an acceptance that that has to change? Yeah, I mean, look, I come from Clare and there was quite a lot of horticulture in Clare once upon a time, um, supplying both Limerick City and Galway City. But it's gone because people can't compete with a, a 49 cent bag of carrots and it might be organic but it's flown in from North, Amer North Africa, North America, somewhere in the world. So as long as consumers are eating food that's flown in from somewhere else in the world, well, you can presume that, you know, it didn't fly, the carrots don't fly themselves onto the supermarket shelves. Uh, or any, you hope that there's or, going to be something around sustainability and slow the, the, food movement? Would you hope that there'd be something like this contained within uh, this climate bill, Michael? I, I, I would, but I mean, it's how do we change individual consumers um, uh, habits, but also, you know, food has become quite cheap, and I mean, the, up to now, 
the, 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 perp, the, the common agricultural policy was about producing lots of cheap food. And it achieved that. And Irish farmers went along with that. But that has had an environmental consequence. It's and it's unfair to expect okay. Irish farmers, or indeed European farmers, farmers to have said, have Farmers have said that if we change our production, expect the consumer to pay for that. But is that fair enough? Is food too cheap now, Breed? Well, I mean, first of all, at the beginning of this conversation, there was a talk about we, we, we would have to import milk and, and beef. We export most of it. We export Union. most of it. And the overproduction is based on the food strategy from the Department of Agriculture. The food strategy for 2020 and 2030 is forcing and pithing the farmer against farmer. The smaller you are, product. the harder the it is for you to product. survive. You to and small farmers are being pushed out. But the whole discussion is not about agriculture. What about free public transport, frequent yeah, public transport? Yeah. What about uh, keeping fossil fuels in the ground? What about ensuring that no more fossil fuel infrastructure is built in the ocean? Because we did ban the bill we put in 2016 was to ban all licenses and stop any more fossil fuel infrastructure. What the government has done is to ban future licenses, okay. but there's yeah. hundreds of licenses out there ready to go. Okay. And we have no guarantee that yeah, that's going I'm, to I'm happen. I want to ask you about this. I, there, some are saying that this bill is going to be actually quite conservative, that it won't have the ambition that's maybe needed for this time of a climate emergency. And um, those measures that Breed is mentioning. Are they all going to be contained this week? There is a lot of talk of, of the farming sector, but it's going to affect everyone. First of all, in terms of the ambition, the ambition is there. The ambition has been set in law. 51% reduction in emissions by, by 2030 and carbon or climate neutrality by 2050. That's in law. And as I've already said, in terms of what's been brought to COP26 by the various nations, this is one of the most ambitious. It's been described as many as best in class in terms of legislation. Oh, really? So it's the, already out there? This is the Climate Action Bill. They know what the draft proposals are over Glasgow. <laughs> no, this is the Climate Action Bill I'm, I'm referring to, Claire. Okay. This is the Climate Action the Bill in terms of the emissions. In terms of the plan, okay. Peter Paul, no, we, the rest we, of us are in the dark. We will see um, a complete shift in terms of how we do things. Breed mentioned public transport. There already has been significant investment in active travel, in walking and cycling. There, there has been an announcement uh, this week in relation to, to um, transforming public sector, uh, public transport. 25% um, increase in um, bus services in rural Ireland. Um, and and well, in energy, energy, I have to mention energy because this is key. This is where we can get great wins. We can produce 30,000 um, megawatts of energy in um, floating offshore wind in Ireland. We could be a net contributor to energy in Europe and a net contributor okay. to renewable energy. We absolutely there's, could, there's but huge, the problem is you're doing it here, through so the, the ambition private is sector. There and we'll there's see no public input the, the into point, renewable energy. Point, it's point, all been done through the private sector. I have to make and this it point. is not going to work. The we did it with the ESB in the 30s, 40s and 50s. We electrified the whole country. We need a state-run, state-owned, not-for-profit renewable energy company that does it correctly and doesn't invade the spaces in the sea that will destroy marine biology. It can be done. It has been done before when the country had nothing and we can do it again. Instead, we're facilitating private enterprise at sea the way we have facilitated developers on land. The potential is there. Look, the, the climate action plan will be published soon. We have a, a, a pie essentially that has been given us by the advisory yes. council. With um, the budget, th that's going and to be divided to be up, okay. um, and we will achieve that. The climate action plan that will be published and will be debated in the Doyle will achieve 51% we'll reduction look, in emissions. And we will. And we'll have to get back to those uh, the energy resources and, and, and where we're getting it from. And the carbon and taxes. And all of that, and the carbon taxes, they won't go away. Um, that's all we have time for. My panel will be staying with us. And coming up after the break, as new COVID cases hit their highest since January, is enough being done to support our frontline workers? Stay with us.
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Health Minister Stephen Donnelly voiced his concerns earlier as he told the Dáil that today's virus case numbers would be the highest since mid-January. We have hospitals that are getting fuller with COVID patients. As a result of this, and as a result of the people having to go into ICUs, elective surgery for other men, women and children is being cancelled. The situation right now is serious. Well, my panel are still with me, Fianna Fáil TD Christopher O'Sullivan, Independent TD Michael McNamara and People Before Profit TD Breed Smith. And joining us via Skype is General Secretary of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, Phil Hay. Phil, when you saw those case numbers today, 3,726 um, uh, cases of, of COVID-19 infection, and the numbers in hospital, 493 people in hospital. Tell us how you believe the system is coping and what those sort of figures mean to you, how worried you are about what hospitals will be facing. Well, we've been flagging since July that the numbers were going the wrong way. As you know, we record daily trolley counts and the numbers were very high from July, indicating that the winter was going to be difficult. So um, today, for example, we have over 500 people on trolleys who are uh, very sick, need to be in hospital, but there are no beds for them. That's not unusual in the Irish Public Health Service in the winter. And therefore, this isn't a surprise. What is different this year is that we have a, a global pandemic, which is very transmittable. Therefore, overcrowding is really, really dangerous. So we've been saying to the health service, we need the winter plan. We need it very early. We still don't have a winter plan. And we need real help now from the private hospitals in order to ensure that we are not making people sick because they're in overcrowded hospitals. Because uh, as everybody knows, this variant of, of, of COVID-19 is extremely transmissible. Our hospitals um, are not, in, in many instances, um, the, the air hygiene is very worrying. We've had uh, a request now with the HSE for just over six weeks to have a, a full review of the air hygiene. Our members are working in circumstances in, in some locations where there simply are no windows. So the sickness amongst the staff is very worrying. The um, announcement of NIAC that booster vaccinations will be rolled out is welcome. And we now have to get on with that. But we have a lot more to do in ensuring that the hospitals themselves are not the cause of infection. 
Tell us about, um, we're hearing over 3,000 workers, if I'm right, are out as a result of COVID. Are those healthcare workers who, who have contracted COVID-19 or are they deemed close contacts of people in hospital and, and other um, settings that's forced them out of the job at the moment? It's a bit of both. Um, we have we know that we have about 400 infections a week for the last number of weeks, just over 400. And we know that that's increasing. We know that the, partly that's due to the efficacy of the vaccine reducing. But also we know that the environments, as I just said, are not healthy of themselves. We also know that um, some healthcare workers are vulnerable and are not at work as a result of that. And some are in um, are in 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 late stages of um, recovery from COVID. And we still have, unfortunately, um, a number of healthcare workers, nurses, midwives and others who have themselves been out because of long COVID. And that is um, a very serious issue and takes a long time to recover. You've obviously welcomed uh, the NIAC recommendation around this booster shot for healthcare workers. How quickly are you hearing that it can be rolled out? Logistically, is it, is it possible to do this in, in a short period of time? Because as we're heading into the winter, of course, time's against us. Exactly. And I think we wasted some time when we had the vaccination programme in the nursing homes because uh, last time round, we vaccinated the staff and the residents at the same time. So we now have to repeat that and send teams in to vaccinate the staff when the residents have already been vaccinated. So we've wasted time, in fact. Uh, I think also the um, peer vaccination programme for the, for the, for the winter, uh, we have a, a very sophisticated vaccination um, system for the flu vaccine, where uh, nurses and midwives in workplaces administer the vaccine to others. We also have uh, vaccination clinics that we are told um, and, and we're quite confident can cope with um, the vaccination program now for the booster. So we're confident that this can happen very, very quickly. And um, the HSE are advising us that they are in the middle of planning for this weekend and early next week. OK, uh, just to come back to my panel on that, you know, what we're hearing about the, the situation in our hospitals at the moment, what I was really struck by was what Phil was saying about air hygiene, you know, working in rooms with no windows. You know, we talk about the worry in our schools and here we are, in, in, you know, at the coalface really of, of the COVID crisis in our hospitals and there's fears about, about how, how fresh the hygiene and the, and the air systems are there, Christopher. Yeah, and I think listening to Phil and the circumstances that she's describing and uh, what, uh, front, what healthcare workers uh, are going through, I think that underlines the importance of this week's announcement in relation to the rollout uh, of booster vaccines. And we're going to have about 1.3 million uh, vaccines, booster vaccines administered between healthcare workers and um, those over over the age of 60. So that, that's uh, absolutely yeah. really important. But in relation to yeah, hygiene, if, it's, if that is the situation within our hospitals, if, if ventilation isn't adequate, if there isn't enough fresh air, then that certainly needs to be reviewed and needs to be well, looked at straight away because it, it's not good enough. Have, like, the buildings aren't suddenly new and <laughs> appeared. I mean, these are the buildings that have, have had to serve people throughout this entire pandemic. And we know the issues that we have there. Like in, in, in the case of planning, could we not have looked at ventilation in our hospitals. And of course it was looked at and listen as and was as, anything as, done about as with it? anything I think following public health advice um, you know it served us well so far government has very rarely 
deviated from public health advice and it's led to a situation where in Ireland um, we've done comparatively well in terms of mortality rate, uh, we've yeah. kept case numbers low, our vaccination rate has been excellent and that is from following public health advice but if there is situations where there's uh, problems with ventilation, there's problem with uh, aeration of hospitals then that needs to be looked at. We do know that a lot, a lot of our hospitals um, are older um, they're, they're quite old yeah. compared to the modern hospitals, that's going to cause issues and I think we saw that manifest itself in a situation where uh, unfortunately and wrongly in my view um, there was restrictions with maternity access and that was down to the same issue yeah. of ventilation and circulation of I, air that should never have happened so obviously you, we need to look at, at would, the structures in okay, our you, you would you would worry really about the structures that are in place especially as we're heading into winter breed um, what do you make of the concerns being voiced there um, by Phil Hay just on those rising COVID figures and the fact that actually so many healthcare workers are falling ill well, it's, it's very, very difficult for healthcare workers, extremely difficult for them, and they, we do absolutely need them. We saw the student nurses today outside the Dáil protest and the fact that they aren't being paid properly for the work that they're doing. They're not training, they're working. Um, and I have to take issue with what Christopher just said, that we did look at ventilation hospitals. No, we didn't. And if we did, why didn't we fix it? I mean, it's not that expensive to put certain filters into rooms. HEPA filters are quite cheap, about €150 Euro each. Orla Hegarty of UCD is shouting at us all the time, buy these things and put them crucially into classrooms. There have been 30 children admitted to ICU since, November, since uh, September. Now, admittedly, most of them tested negative, but they were treated for COVID-related uh, uh, respiratory uh, syndrome that just makes it such a tragedy. We've stopped uh, tracking and tracing in the schools. We've stopped close contact and we've stopped testing regularly. Why are we not keeping the fundamental recommended systems in place okay. that are the health recommended the schools, and the though, ventilation I mean, is a schools, huge schools issue have in workplaces, in Money schools. will be provided. If it's applied for money, will, will be provided to provide Sorry. extra space, to provide ventilation, um, even if, if extra CO2 it, it, monitors no, are in place. I think the CO2 monitor is one thing, but the filters are quite filters another. Are so it can tell you when there's a problem, but whether the, it's going to make the air fresher is quite another thing. They're keeping just the windows back, open and the kids are freezing. Okay, yeah. And I just want to get back to the issue with our hospitals. When we're hearing all this, the rising case mm. numbers, people will be quite alarmed to hear the cases nearing 4,000 today. The same figures as they were back in mid-January when we were at the height of the problem. Yes, people are vaccinated now, but it is worrying. Of course. What, well, and what do you think about what we're doing and the government strategy that's in place with well, regard all the reopening given well, where we're when, at. When we first, you know, learnt of COVID and it first appeared on our television screens, one of my memories of it was this huge hospital being built in Wuhan in 14 days. Now, we've borrowed some of the Chinese response to COVID, but we haven't done really anything to increase our health capacity or, or we've marginally increased our health capacity over the past 20 months. I mean, you recall all of these young doctors, nurses and older doctors and nurses who came back to play their part for Ireland, made themselves available and so few of them were employed. I mean, you know, I think now our political system is accepting COVID is going to be with us for quite some time. We have spent more money, uh, certainly per capita, than I think any other country in Europe in our COVID response. But we have nothing to show for it in terms of increased health capacity, in, t in terms of more people working in our hospitals. And, you know, and the last thing I'd say with regard to people being... The last thing... Um, the, 
from a very, very low base, and we still have less ICU beds per capita. But, you know, people are afraid, but it is important that people present because one of the huge problems that has accompanied this pandemic is people not presenting with an illness and only showing up months Actually, later when it's too late. To I want to it. ask Phil about that, just about people presenting with illness and also the elective surgery and other things that are non-COVID related. But is there a fear that, you know, the, the impact, Stephen Donnelly uh, appeared quite worried about it in the Dáil today, the impact that COVID is having on other procedures in hospital. Are you seeing that? Well, I think uh, every winter we see overcrowding at a level that curtails all uh, elective activities. So this isn't new. It's it's predictable. And when, when COVID hit, we ceased all of our elective work. We sought assistance from the private hospitals and we did the right thing in order to make sure that those that were so sick with COVID requiring um, ventilation and intensive care, that we would be prepared. We repurposed wards, et cetera. That's happening today in every hospital in the country. Nurses and midwives are saying to us that from one end of the day to the next, you can repurpose a ward because the numbers of people who are being diagnosed with COVID, that just doesn't happen in the morning. That can happen at different stages during the day. You can be admitted, not positive, and then have a positive uh, result. So um, our wards are under severe pressure. And then we have our EDs who are dealing with all of the normal winter illnesses and other illnesses overcrowded to the tune of just over 500 today. I mean, we're not taking this seriously if we're if we are saying that this is a surprise today. How are we've been predicting this? We've been predicting this from 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 mid July, yeah. and we still don't have a winter plan, and we still are not seeking assistance from our private hospitals to take the acute work, the the elective work from and take the pressure off our public hospitals because okay. they absolutely cannot cope at the moment. And when we hear, you know, surge and we'll, we'll, we'll get more ICU beds, you, for every single ICU bed, you need a minimum of six nurses. So okay. the bed is no use without the staff. We need real investment in, in staffing. We need real um, and, and, and very rapid uh, assistance now to take the pressure off our acute hospitals. Overcrowding in a pandemic is a recipe for disaster. Okay, Christopher, I have to put that to you. Look, this HSE winter plan, I mean, where are we now? The start of the 2nd of November. Where's the plan? I've no doubt that Minister Donnelly is doing his very best to get a significant winter plan. Uh, last year's uh, winter plan was um, the biggest in the history of the state. Uh, it worked to a point where we, when we saw those surges in January and February, uh, although ICU were incredibly stretched and the health yeah. system was incredibly stretched, we were still able to cope with those increase in numbers. But so I'm I know just thinking that, he, that we have that sur we have those numbers now that hitting the, the 4,000 mark, that, that occurred in, in mid-January with us. But at that point, the winter plan was already in place. The winter plan is not in place right now when we've got 4,000 cases. We had an increase in, in um, COVID numbers at exactly this time last year. I mean, you know, Stephen Donnelly went out to label people as being reckless. I mean, it is entirely reckless not to have a response in place for something that happened last year. And if it happened last year, then of course it can happen again. I mean, we're not learning from the mistakes of the past. Even in nursing homes, Breathe and I were in the, the COVID committee. And what was done in nursing homes at the start of this 
I was going to say it was criminal. We don't know, but it needs to be looked at. Okay. And we, have, the committee recommended that it be looked at. Nothing has happened in that regard. Mistakes are being made and repeated consistently throughout this. And unless we stop repeating mistakes, we're not going to move on from this. Briefly. It was, it, it, it was you're, Michael's right. This time last year, we, we did see an increase in numbers. It was the one time uh, that government moved away from NEFID advice and, and from, from uh, public health advice. And we saw what happened in January and February. So far, public health advice, advice has served us uh, very well. But it's if always we stick to, to lock it, down and restrict to it, we'll be okay. No alternative that okay. I have heard up to now. That and that's not, that's not sustainable indefinitely. Okay. And if we're accepting that COVID is going to be with us indefinitely, we cannot continue restricting that. On that note, Michael, I just want to ask you about the extension of the, of the those legislative powers mm -hmm. until February of next year that, that uh, again, the Health Minister has strongly urged cross-party support mm. for. Um, would you be supporting the extension of the powers that the, the COVID passes, the mask wearing, that this should be passed by the Dáil tomorrow? No, I wouldn't because I don't see what's going to be different next February or indeed next October to now. But do you know what Stephen Donnelly said? He said it's to protect the frontline workers that we're so worried about what, tonight. Would you accept that? I think what would protect the frontline workers if there were more hospital space and more frontline workers so that those few who are there weren't under the pressure that they're under. Okay. Well, Michael, the COVID cert worked. You know, mandatory hotel quarantine work to bring numbers mandatory down. Mandatory hotel why quarantine Why don't you support something that you know that works? 0.39% of why, cases why in the country that, you know that time. It was a farcical waste of money. Okay, we'll have to leave 0.39% it 0.39% of cases at that time. We'll have to leave it there. My thanks to uh, Phil, who joined us via Skype, Christopher, Michael and Breed, who are here in studio with me. Coming up after the break, the impact the climate crisis has had on our mental health. Welcome back. A global study led by academics from the UK's University of Bath has found that nearly half of young people worldwide say climate change anxiety is affecting their daily life, while three quarters of respondents aged between 16 and 25 felt that the future is frightening. In studio to discuss the impact of climate change on our mental health is Director of Friends of the Earth Ireland, Oshin Coughlin, and psychotherapist and author Stella O'Malley. Um, Stella, I want to come to you first on this issue that's been going to eco-anxiety. You know, there's probably a lot of it around this week. But what are you seeing in general around this trend um, among especially teenagers and children? Um, are people coming to you with this preoccupying their minds excessively? I do, yeah. I do get a, a lot of people who feel overwhelmed and feel very anxious and a sense of dread about the future and a feeling that their little efforts aren't really making any difference and frightened, frightened for their future. And it's interesting that that's what that survey said, because I could really, I see that in my clinical work. These are teenagers who want to do the, the right thing and they want to be part of, of a better future. And they genuinely think that they are endangered. And it, it, it feels like they have a, a kind of an overriding sense that life, life is kind of, coming in on them and threatening them. And if you look at like different generations had different fears. So, you know, 
back in the, you know, the 50s, there was reds under, under the beds, and then there was the fear of the atom bomb. And then it goes on, and there's the fear of the Russians. And it goes on into generations and different kind of fears. And obviously, recently, we've had COVID anxiety. But the climate change anxiety that I've noticed, the kind of the eco-anxiety, as you're calling it, that is becoming more pervasive, more common, and definitely overwhelming teenagers and young people in general. It's, it's quite noticeable. Yeah. Um what Stella's saying there is that maybe, is that message, do you think, too strong? This idea that you know, the world is burning, we hear Greta Thunberg, um, her rhetoric. Now, she's being lauded for cutting through all the promises that politicians are making and saying it as it is. But is it potentially damaging? What do you think, Oshin? I think it depends what follows. So, uh, actually, I think young people appreciate the fact that, that Greta and others are telling the truth. What they don't like is being is being lied to. They they, they can they know when parents are, are are dissembling and they know when global leaders are dissembling about about the future we face. The reason they're worried is because they've read the science, they've studied the science uh, in school, and they're right to be worried. They are having a proportionate yeah. reaction to the situation. But what what happens next is the important thing. And I think some of the messaging that's come from political leaders in Ireland as elsewhere over many years is the problem which has been translating this issue into individual change and individual responsibility. And that is a mismatch then between this overwhelming problem and my little efforts. But the, the, the issue is we need systemic change, which yeah. is, needs to be led by governments. But I mean, there is, I mean, you would, uh, uh, and a lot of campaigners would have been saying, uh, there are simple things that you can do. Very rarely. The issue around, well. Very rarely. For, for people like Friends of the Earth, we're campaigners. Uh, uh, the first thing we say to individuals is don't just be an individual. Get, get together and get active. And not, don't just worry about your behaviour. Use your voice as a citizen. Talk to your politicians. Okay. Do you think that's a good thing, like the idea of getting active, getting involved in groups and campaigns? Is that good for someone who's potentially overwhelmed by this feeling of doom around our climate? It can be good. It can be very good. It can be a way of channeling your anxiety to something more productive. And certainly the feeling, I really like what Oshin is saying, is don't be an individual. Get more backup because when you're on your own, you feel isolated and worse. However, some people can become very overwrought within activism and, and can feel very distressed and very overwhelmed. So there's, there has to be balance, a classic flaky psychotherapist saying that, but there really does yeah. have to be balance with it. I, I, how are you seeing it playing out just among you know, people that you're seeing who are worried about this? How is it playing out then in their day-to-day -day lives? I've seen it play out and I've seen it playing out in a beautiful way where somebody, maybe, you know, somebody becomes inspired, a young person becomes inspired and does something in their school and they feel great. And I've seen a lot uh, as well on the other side kind of irritability and anger that other people aren't falling in with what they're doing and aren't kind of getting as bothered as them. And a kind of, why don't they see? Do you follow me? So a kind of a rage towards it and a kind of, it's calm, come from a good place, but a, a real frustration at the yeah. world. And it can feel very intense. And mentally, I would say, maybe not the most appropriate because Honestly, and I, I don't know if you'll, uh, if you'll agree, you probably won't agree with me, Oshin, but I think we have never been safer. We've never had better health. We've never had better education. We've never lived so long. In a global sense, the stats, I know there is an awful lot of You're issues. You're saying we're overreacting. 
I'm saying that there's a huge amount to celebrate. There's a huge amount. Okay. And why am I seeing so many children who are so overwrought with anxiety? It feels like we're not getting the messages. I love the phrase Friends of the Earth because it's like, let's bring some okay. positive yeah, into this. I'm Rather than frightening them into it, uh, can, we, can we get them into a more positive yeah, place? Yeah, and I'm just wondering when Stella was saying all that about the frustration of people, why aren't people doing, why aren't we doing more? You were nodding away. Is that your life? Is that your sense of I disagree about the last part about the proportionality. Like, I think, I think that we are facing an existential threat to human civilization, so that's, that's, that's a problem. But I was, I was nodding a lot around, around the issue of balance in, in our own individual lives. And, and, and the, interestingly, though, in the activists under 30, who are the people born since the first of these climate meetings and who are, are rightly angry that we haven't done enough over the last 30 years, you also see when they are forming activist groups, they give a lot more attention to self-care and to uh, looking after each other and to avoiding burnout than activists of my generation are, are older, who, who you, know, you threw yourself in for good and you, you, you burnt out, you made your, and, and no, one, no one asked how you were, and, that was, and, and you know, there was all sorts of issues in, 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 in social movements over many years. They're a lot more balanced, but again, it comes from working together. And I think that's the key thing is back to don't be an individual, because you'll, you know, how can you possibly solve a problem like this on your own? Or how can you know how to act through it and navigate it on your own? Okay. Whereas if you share your experiences, you'll find the creativity in the, youth, in the youth movement around climate right now is really inspiring. It's where I get my hope from. Okay, would you say that's a practical step or what's the advice that you would give? You know, there could be parents watching tonight and they're worried about their kids being, you know, it being a constant, it's in the news, it's everywhere, yeah. how they can help them. What would you say? I think balance is really important that they don't just channel into one kind of subject and completely focus on it, that they keep you know, being joyful, having a sense of fun, having a sense of humour is essential. And I'm really glad to hear that the under 30s have an eye on their self-care because it can become very serious and it can feel like you're constantly the little boy with his finger in the dam. And that's not a nice feeling and it's not, not a nice way to exist. And we're here, like, you know what I mean, to exist in a pleasant way on one level or another. I'm going to give you two, two very short <laughs> quotes to finish with, because one of the things, one of the oldest uh, revolutionary quotes is, is by, by a woman called Emma Goldman. If I can't okay. dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. Like, you have to have those outlets as well as the, okay. the change. Like but it. also, on, 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 uh, that, that <laughs> the weight of climate change is too difficult to bear alone. You must bear it together. Great. We'll have to leave it there. That is it from us. Thanks to our panel tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning, but from all the late team here, good night, take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.